If you're vulnerable to psychic damage from roguish language, stay away from these gibbering mouths. But if you intend on listening to this podcast about enriching your fantastical group hallucinations, you're too far gone already. Your next game is going to be rife with strife, and here's why. In this episode, we find some answers to what is a good starting point for every good antagonist? And how do you create three of them that feel connected and meaningful? And how do you create the ideal corrupted antagonist your party will love to hate? Welcome to the Hook and Chance podcast. I'm Jordan. And I'm his brother, Travis. So if you've been following this season, we have been laying the groundwork for an awesome villain that's going to oppose the characters. We talked in the last episode about all the right ways to keep their personalities and some of the overall themes of their characters as individuals and as a whole in the forefront so that we can build an entire campaign or story around them. And if you didn't listen to that episode, don't worry. You don't have to know anything. No homework required. You're still going to get a simple effective process to build meaningful opposition for your party and we're going to try and pack in some fun ideas so the real problem that we're trying to address is how do you build a villain that feels connected to those characters and then how do you make sure that it's dynamic and it's not just a one directional you know straight point a to point b we got to go kill this villain and the thing that i really struggle with sometimes is just coming up with my own concepts in a void in my dream space <laughs> or just stealing them from movies and just saying like, here's Darth Vader. He's a bad guy. Now he's your bad guy because he's a good bad guy. <laughs> right. And what we've really discovered is if you've invested the kind of time that we usually do in creating the compelling characters, sometimes they don't motivate the players. Something is disconnected. Something doesn't quite fit or jive with those players and their characters. And for some reason, they just go, yeah, I'm not really interested in stopping him, but he's going to take over the world. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty much the worst when you do all that prep and then your villain goes off with a whimper rather than a bang. Nobody cares. Right. And even when we've had villains resonate well at the table, you know, in the past, I haven't understood why. Why is this working? Yeah. So you just like glom onto it and you don't want to let that villain die. <laughs> you give them plot armor because you're afraid of characters and players losing interest. Right. Or the next time you build a villain, you're like the villain being evil because he wanted money was must have been the key. Right. It's not the name. It's not the accent that you gave them. It's not their pet monkey, Giorgio. <laughs> why do they have a pet <laughs> Oh, uh, I'm not even. No, we're moving yeah, you on. Asked. We're moving okay. on for now. <laughs> Damn it. That sounds vaguely <laughs> like a threat. Uh, our theory is that it has more to do with attaching values that absolutely conflict with the players and not only the players, the players and their characters, that there is a through line where that villain opposes the very essence of who those characters are. And by doing things this way, you're going to be able to quickly plan out a whole gallery of foes for your party that go way beyond that basic concept of evil 
and get into all of the different nooks and crannies of what actually matters to your players and the characters that they've painstakingly created just for you to do something with. And another reason why I really like this approach is that it tends to create a living, breathing world. It feels more alive and more dynamic. Absolutely, because honestly, with this as my starting point, I always have so many avenues to go off of where NPCs can now have feelings about each of the antagonists rather than, you know, you having to come up with a sport that they play or like a hobby that they have that's (laughs) independent of anything to do with the story. Right. It's not about the details. It's about the core, the soul of this villain. And having this foundation lets you layer on all those awesome, weird ideas you've got for antagonists that come to you in the weirdest moments of your day. Like how 1960s Robin would solve mysteries. Like, oh, I had a weird dream last night. Dreams. What if the villain controlled the party's dreams? What, what if the players <laughs> describe their characters' nightmares and I have them fight the villain in their nightmares? It's okay. That was a whole train of like barely connected thoughts. So (laughs) just to recap, you think of new ideas for a D&D story in the so loose and unconnected way that it's similar to 1960s Robin from the Adam West Batman and Robins. That's what I, yeah. There are goddamn layers to that that I just, man. Isn't that normal? No, no, huh. I don't think it is. Weird. That is, <laughs> that is a loose stream of consciousness that only you are capable of. Thank you very much. <laughs> Anyways, what we need at its core is a villain that players just hate. Their plot, their themes, their behaviors, they're all built in perfect opposition to the players and their characters. And we're going to do that with something called four-corner opposition. Yeah, and this concept comes originally from The Anatomy of Story by John Truby, a book that I got real deep into. But it's a really cool method of fleshing out opposition to your party that creates antagonists that they love to hate and stay fixated on because they stand perfectly diametrically opposed to the characters and to each other. And this is done by understanding the player character traits and their core values. Then you can basically determine at least two collective values for that entire party. You can kind of summarize what they care about. Figure out what ties them together. And you can do that by a conversation with the group. You can kind of just mull over their characters on your own, or you can kind of flesh it out in the first session of play if you need to. Then you start by designing an antagonist that perfectly opposes those traits and values in an opposite corner. And because it's four corner opposition, you can create more dynamism by creating an ally who has one shared trait, but one opposing trait. Ooh, we don't quite agree with this person. And then you can create another antagonist that actually shares a common value, but they're against the party. What? And those terms are just really loose ideas for us to work off of, but they can all be people that your party is going to align with or befriend, or they could end up being violently opposed. It's not about each corner with a plan in mind of how the characters are going to react. It's just you're you're allowing them that space to react. This allows the players to have their own opinions about each one of these villains, but have an opinion because they've been designed to create opinions in your player characters. Totally. But first, we should probably talk about some of those player characters. Just to catch you up 
on who they are and how we're going to build the perfect villains for them. And we introduced these characters in that last episode. We're just going to go over some of the core details that you got to know um, for each of them. And we've got three of them. The first is named Weld. They are a practical problem solver. We kind of went with the archetype, a rogue sage, if that gives you an idea. They're a technician, they're methodical, controlling, and they're a little bit arrogant. Weld is on a path of redemption after developing a conscience, after years of serving some kind of charismatic demi-lich figure, maybe a big, bad, evil character. Now what they want is to organize and control everything after being under someone else's corrupting influence for so very long. But maybe along the way they can learn to forgive themselves and realize that that's not their fault. And then you've got Eden, who is the optimistic, faithful, altruistic, naive, and slightly gullible, you know, warrior type, the pure-hearted vanquisher of evils, the innocent frontliner. And a general theme of this character is their faith versus their doubt. You know, having good intentions, but maybe bad reasonings for good outcomes. Like one of those haphazardly good people. Yeah, where it's debatable, (laughs) their line of reasoning. But only because they follow blindly some you know, very loose concept of what is good and evil. Yeah, this character was more or less built to be a bit of a follower. Right. They're vanquishing evil for their deity, and they're totally willing to give up control in order to follow what they think is the will of that deity. But, you know, they have free will, and maybe after time they'll realize that. Right. Then we got Squib. Wild card. Daring, talented, intuitive, hot-headed, and reckless. There's some kind of magician rebel. And there was some fun ideas thrown into this character. Squib is from a dynasty of world-famous chefs, but after they discovered their raw magical talent, they abandoned their family, their responsibilities, and any expectations that anyone ever had of them because that sucks. That's pressure. They went off to wander the world in in search of some get-rich-quick adventuring lifestyle. And really, their want is to... Yeah, be free of all of that responsibility, but ultimately they're probably going to need to find an actual purpose for themselves and impose some kind of structure to their life that probably works for them. And we bring up all of these points because, again, this process is really built around the characters themselves and because we need to kind of summarize what are those core values that all three of these characters have in common that they'll most likely react to. So we need those core values to work from, but we also need some other ideas to flesh out based on how those characters were built and what they care about. So first, we're going to go to the Sanctum of Scholars and talk about some inspirations from these characters that we can use to develop their antagonists. Step into the Sanctum of Scholars where records of scientific discoveries and natural wonders awaken worlds of possibilities. So the Sanctum of Scholars is all about trying to find some inspirations from real-world things, people? I don't know. In in this case, we're doing... From things that happened before today and things that were discovered before today. History! Yeah. That's the word. That's how I define it. Okay, so 
for our first character, Weld, we were trying to figure out what would Weld want to fight against as a super logical, super organized, evidence-based kind of person who would just rub Weld the wrong way. So we figured it would probably be someone who uses emotional tactics rather than factual, logical ones to take power from others. And I think the best example of this is the classic snake oil salesman. If something is going to like this infuriates me, you know, this is a person who historically has been totally fine with practically poisoning other people for their own gain. Yeah. And I don't know if you've ever actually looked into the history of snake oil or their salespeople, but it's pretty fascinating. And there might be a few ideas to steal. I like how you say, and their salespeople, <laughs> like snake oil was somehow a, a brand. It's a product a, of snakes. Sales team. And they had representatives that <laughs> sell their oil. No, I think it was definitively people that were unaffiliated that could get away with anything. Fair enough. Uh, well, I'm going to start with what snake oil actually was about. So it contains, I'm not even going to try to say it. <laughs> Cool. A type of <laughs> the research paid off. Icosapentaenoic acid, EPA for short, I'm going to call it that from now on, one of the two types of omega-3 fatty acids that's most readily used by our bodies. So there actually is a good thing in snake oil. The snake oil is not the problem. It's the salesperson. But what happened was, in the U.S., Chinese railway laborers in the mid-19th century use snake oil to treat joint pain. It's a staple in traditional Chinese medicine. So folks in the U.S. start bottling and selling rattlesnake oil as a health product, which, you know, rattlesnake oil doesn't quite have the same level of healthy fatty acids as the Chinese water snake, which is where <laughs> they were getting it from originally. <laughs> this is just such an indicative attitude of a whole culture of just like, yeah, any snakes will do, probably. <laughs> Let's just milk this snake right here. How about this venomous one? <laughs> How about one of the most venomous ones in the world? Let's just, let's just squeeze it into a bottle and we'll sell it. That'll probably work. So then Clark Stanley comes along and he wants to take advantage of the situation. So he starts putting on shows where he cuts open a snake and then boils it. He skims the oil off the top of the water all in front of a crowd this was some pretty wild stuff at the time. They did not have Netflix. And <laughs> that's why it became popular. Yeah. Well, it was the only show in town. I guess I'll go see the snake boiling. What else am I doing? <laughs> he then goes on to make a product that contains no actual snake oil. Like he had the snake oil there. He just w was bottling up something else. <laughs> Good job, Clark. <laughs> you had one task. So instead, he used tallow, which is like a beef fat, uh, added some chili pepper to that, a little turpentine for flavor, what? and some campor oil because it was lying around. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Clark, you've officially lost it. Like, looked around the room kind of level of <laughs> energy putting that formula together. And then, of course, because it's snake oil, I'm assuming that it cured literally everything. Oh, yeah. It was good for rheumatism, neuralgia, sciatica, lame back, lumbago, toothache, sprains, swellings, frostbite, chill blains, bruises, sore throat, bites of animals, insects, 
and reptiles. What the fuck is chill blains? <laughs> they started making up things now? Yeah, I had to Google it. It's apparently those little red spots that show up on your fingers and toes sometimes. What? <laughs> I don't really know. But the slogan was good for everything a liniment ought to be good for. <laughs> so whatever that means to you. This little... This little tincture bottle full of turpentine and other crazy shit. Yeah. yeah. Just put it anywhere. All right. So what are we going to pull from this to flavor our villain? Well, I mean, that kind of villain to me is just fun to play because it's like it's not like overly directly evil at first until you realize that what they're doing is <laughs> pretty actually insidious. But it really boils down to just having that like lack of respect and care for their fellow human beings. Like it's just purely selfish. Yeah, I definitely feel this. The, this kind of like manipulative characters that, you know, you just you love to hate because they're so easily hateable. Like they're just dog shit people. Yeah. <laughs> when you prey on people's desire to be well, oh, that's like the lowest of the low. Right. That is almost what we need to hone in on. The commodification of being well and being okay. There's definitely a through line here because we've got this town that we previously discussed has a kind of cure all (laughs) water that surrounds it. Like you go and you bathe in the waters. So if they are potentially trying to commodify that, like that's an interesting premise. Yeah, absolutely. We've accidentally created our own snake oil in the game. The next inspiration would be for Eden. You know, this character who has, you know, kind of just an intense faith in their deity and is trying to do, quote unquote, good by them with no real direction. It's just faith based. So with this, I could definitely see somebody could prey on Eden's faith for personal gain. So easy. And that's exactly what cult leaders do. They look for people that are looking for that direction and they just say, hey, I got it. Follow me. I know the way. Do we need to lean into cult leaders? Yeah. We need to find some inspiration from a cult leader. And these folks really strike me as like always the charismatic narcissist. Yeah, they just exude that confidence They claim to have all the easy answers for all life's hardest problems. Well, considering that, you know, they're playing pretty fast and loose with no rules here in terms of like following their own deity. So I could see our cult leader type enemy fixating and benefiting off of that, like even maybe aligning their religion with that of Eden's and trying to lead them astray or at least claiming that in the short term when Eden is around kind of thing. Right. Oh, yeah. Like immediately discrediting what they've already even said about (laughs) their. Oh, that's despicable. I'll say anything to lure in a new victim. And they always got to have that bit of secret knowledge behind the curtain that they're always hinting at. Like if if you trust me, then you'll get the next level of wisdom and knowledge and truth and if we play it right later on in the story that can create some pretty epic moments of eden realizing how they've been tricked kind of reconciling their faith and figuring out how they want to move forward 100 percent. and then we also have squib 
Squib is, you know, the the wild card, the rebel, the don't hold me down. I'm better off on my own. I'm better off wielding all of this power. I love power. It's actually really addictive. Uh, it, <laughs> you know, I'm going to do with it whatever I choose to do. Yeah. It's my power to control and to benefit from. We really just got to give Squibs somebody to rebel against. And since they came from a controlling family, I think, I mean, there's a lot of crossover here, but we can also consider how a controlling parental figure behaves, which, hint, it's kind of similar to a cult leader. That's foreboding. Some of the kind of traits that we can give to any of the antagonists that are that controlling parental figure are things like they're interfering in everything. They're using manipulation tactics. They're giving conditional love. They're giving really harsh punishments. They don't give empathy or respect unless you do something that, you know, is what they wanted from you. They don't respect individuality. They don't give privacy. They criticize anyone that has an independent opinion on things. Mm. That definitely gives us a lot to like pepper into some of these villains. Yeah, we're going to have to figure out what kinds of characters these thoughts are going to apply to. But we can kind of refer back to this inspiration when we're fleshing out the four corners. Well, and even I could see there being a lot of opportunities throughout the game to exhibit some of these to give the players something to react to when some of the other NPCs start exhibiting some of these behaviors of just like, do I like this? Is this okay? And, you know, to feed our players lots of stuff to go, oh man, my character's totally against this, or, oh, I kind of like that. They, they're wielding power. Like, we can give our players a lot of different paths to reflect on their own characters throughout this. Yeah, and something I kind of like about that parental figure one is that it can start in a way that seems good, like a nice, gentle, nurturing parental figure can slowly morph into a very controlling one because that's what they do. Right, right. We can get a little bit spooky with this over time. Yeah. Well, let's actually put all of this into practice and let's build some damn villains. Creep into the conspirators' conclave, the treacherous birthplace of bitter rivals, tenuous allies, devious plots, and despicable deeds. So to flesh out the four corners here, we're going to start off with the concepts of, of the corruption of power and what controlling others and manipulation means to each of the corners. This seems to be a real common thread throughout all of our player characters. And it's the two that we're going to gravitate towards in order to build these, because I don't know, they just something feels pretty good about playing with and dabbling around the idea of that control of that manipulation. We've got cult leaders, we've got uh, messed up parental figures, and then, of course, we got just no good down low snake oil salesman. Yeah, all of these ideas are starting to come together and coagulate around this temple. I like it. So just a quick reminder. So far, we've got a loose story idea that there's this temple of living waters. There's there's these waters around it that kind of give life and bounty to the whole region. 
Uh, it's a healing center of a prosperous village in its surrounding valley. And it's being cared by by a sect of spiritual, religious folks. We haven't really nailed that part down yet. And the primary antagonist, the party's real villain, is trying to take that control back for themselves. And we're kind of leaning towards that kickoff or that, you know, story hook to be that something is stopping the healing powers. Like, our players are going to have to figure out how to restore balance in this imbalanced valley. So let's start in the first corner in our four corner opposition, and that is the party. So again, we're trying to figure out what does the party value. And based on all of these characters and the overall themes of control and manipulation and the overall themes of control and manipulation, we've got the party, which we can assume (laughs) based on all of the characters that they've created, is controlling others is bad and manipulation of others is bad. Obviously. I think that's where I sit. (laughs) I can agree with this. (laughs) The characters want control over their own destiny and their abilities and their powers. And yeah, I'd say they're pretty... (laughs) And I think these are going to really easily provide us with what we need to create plot hooks that help the party find their purpose in preventing the manipulation of others. Like you can just have other people in the world getting manipulated. And theoretically, the party's probably going to be interested in stopping that. Right. That opposite corner. We need a villain. We need this villain to completely oppose those values. So we've got a villain. We know that their values are going to be controlling others is necessary and good. And manipulation is a fantastic tool to do that. You know, people get out of line. You got to have tools in your tool belt and manipulation is one of them. We mix in a little bit of that. My way is probably a better way, even though you're too dumb to realize it. You know, that kind of cult leader vibe. We've got this, you know, snake oil salesman who's totally fine (laughs) with hurting others. You got Giorgio the monkey. No, whoa, that <laughs> no. really likes to manipulate others. What? No, no. Giorgio the monkey cannot make an appearance. Sorry, I was just trying to slip that in. See if you noticed. Yeah, of course I would notice. <laughs> How on autopilot do you think I am? I'm just keeping you on your toes. Right. Thank you. So we got this concept of, of this grandmaster of the temple that has decided to take the power of the water for themselves. They think nobody deserves it out there anymore. They need leadership. They need guidance, like a good cult leader thinks. And we definitely want this character to be real evil. Like, there's no question. But maybe they've slowly become this way after a long time leading the temple and kind of just let the power of that go to their heads. You can't go along with them, but you can understand how they would get there. You understand how they justify their evil ways. Right. So here, I mean, it's kind of obvious if you have an entire town that is free and easy and they're all just benefiting off of your temples, you know, healing waters and they're not respecting it and they're so casual about it and they're okay with you doing all the work as long as they get to benefit Like, you could see how on a long enough timeline, somebody would start to get a little bit angry about that. Yeah, when they look outside the temple window and they're putting up a a slide over the healing waters. (laughs) (laughs) This place is fun. 
Yeah, it's uh, we definitely in our session zero, we're talking about that kind of resort town vibe. And so, yeah, a lot of people coming from a lot of different places that have no respect for what is actually happening here. Just think of a popular tourist destination and you'll be in the headspace of this villain. I know I get that way when I go to beautiful, natural places. Yeah. And you see somebody just like tossing some garbage on a beach. Yeah. I mean, that would drive me to villainy. Yeah, I was just going to say, I can see you being a villain, Travis, under those circumstances. (laughs) I am just a hair away. (laughs) So what other methods is this villain going to use throughout their quest to be evil? Well, I mean, obviously they have to be charismatic. Uh, They're going to use those kind of cult leader tactics. And yeah, I think, you know, in this game, we need to dole out some hints from all of the characters since you know, our party can't necessarily meet him at the beginning. Maybe they could, but we need to find a way to make sure that some of these behaviors are front and center. And I think as time goes along, I would probably want to get deeper and deeper and deeper and start to signal to the rest of the players that maybe what they originally thought was like a fatherly figure is actually kind of a bad person. And oh, no, they're actually kind of manipulating the rest of the, you know, the monks here or something like that. You know, you know, you got to slowly let it leak out. Yeah. Like they come in and the whole town sees this leader as a glorious, infallible figure. But the more layers you peel back and the more stories you hear, the more you kind of start to realize that they're real fucky. Well, what I really appreciate about this most is that it also puts our players in the position as the outsiders that start to notice. Everyone else would be blindsided by their villainy, but the players... They're the smart ones. They're the heroes. They're the center of this story. So they're the ones that get to start to slowly question what everyone else is telling them. And you can give that leader some kind of, you know, lieutenants in a sense. The whole community is low key invested in this cult concept of them being a great leader. But they've got that inner circle that they've cultivated in a truly cult like way where people have had to work their way up. And once they were in, they became indoctrinated with all the the scary, creepy methods that they use. Right. Yeah, they're definitely above reproach from most perspectives. But then, you know, obviously, if they're trying to commodify these living waters, maybe cutting off access to it in some way, you know, that makes you really question this person. And are they the good person that everyone thinks they are? And of course, nobody's going to know that he's the one cutting off the waters. Oh, we got to make it a mystery, obviously. (laughs) So I think that's pretty good. I mean, we've got some elements there at play, but we need someone else to bolster it. We need another villain that has one element in common with our players and one that opposes them. So we need a corner that says controlling others is bad and manipulation is sometimes necessary. So they're against the control, like they would probably be against what this, you know, grand master of this temple is up to, but they might sympathize as well and say, you know what? Yeah, it has gone too far. This town doesn't appreciate us. Yeah. 
What I love about this approach, though, is that it still remains open and flexible enough that our players could shift the outcome of the story. You know, our villain is probably a pretty dyed in the wool, like bad person at this point. Like, I'm not sure if they could be redeemed, but it's possible. But then you've also got these other four corners that, you know, like we were saying before, have the the door is open for them to do many different things and to take many different paths and to be influenced by the choices that the players make. Yeah. So I think we need to muddy those waters. We need some kind of betrayer. We need someone. So here's an idea. What if we chose to take the route of two others from this order and have one of them lean one way and one of them lean the other? So there's kind of like a duality to these characters. We're going to treat them as one unit, but it's two separate characters that have some very different opinions. Like they could be even different generations of the grandmaster, you know, the the next one in line and the next one in line kind of thing. They're pretty close to everything, but maybe not part of that true cult. And they can, yeah, they can have different perspectives and kind of share that with the party as they're going through this quest. You know, as far as motives go, you know, one would probably want to keep the living waters as benefiting all. And then maybe the other kind of sides with the grandmaster and thinks that, you know, people do take it too liberally. So we can't have the grandmaster accessible off the get go because we want to use these characters. These are definitely the characters to make the players start to question who is the good person and who is the bad person and what am I doing here? Right. They can be sharing stories and information about the Grandmaster that's going to, you know, reveal some of those layers. And this could be a lot of fun for the players is sussing out who is doing what. This provides so many cool role playing potential possibilities. This would be a ton of fun to introduce these two characters. And then having one of them actually be totally sided with the villain and, you know, have a huge betrayal at some point. That'd be fun. Oh, especially if we make it a double surprise. We lean towards one character being the obvious choice for the one that sides with the Grandmaster (laughs) because, you know, they're the oldest. They're the crotchety one. They're the the like angriest and the, the most vitriolic. But then it turns out that it's the younger one that wants to. Oh, that could be really good because the younger one is the one that's been tricked and manipulated by the Grandmaster. Right. And is the second or third in line to having that Grandmaster status. What a great way of getting rid of your competition. Yeah, there you go. Keeping it idealistically in line with what the Grandmaster's vision is. They're totally indoctrinated. Yeah, a couple of shanks to the kidney and they're on their way to the top. (laughs) Okay, and then the final corner. Now, initially in our session zero, you know, the players said that they wanted something that felt a little bit monstrous. Like we need something within this story that feels like a, a Balrog almost. Right. A deep underground cave beast, right? Right. 
And if you're unfamiliar with any of this, go ahead and listen to the episode that came just before this. This was our session zero where we kind of laid out a lot of the ideas and the where we're drawing a lot of this stuff from that we were joined by some of our patrons to decide to play the role of our characters. And part of that was a big dungeon escape. We want something that they need to run from. And so this obvious choice seems perfect for this other corner of opposition, some kind of monster. So we still have to follow the rules of the four corner opposition, though. So this monster's concept is that controlling others is good. And I'd say the monster is a predator. So like by its nature, it kind of controls its prey (laughs) as they die. But it's also been maybe under the control of the temple and is the temple's big bad secret. Ooh, like a guardian or something like that. Yeah, like I don't quite know the reason yet, but I think it'd be really cool if they get down there and find out that the temples had a hand in keeping this thing constrained and now it's out or something like that. Yeah, the dirty secret. If the temple is in control of it, then we've got that control aspect. But then how are we going to work in manipulation into this whole thing? Because I don't see a monster as typically being capable of being manipulative. Like they're just the monster. They're a pure force of will. Right. And this corner is taking the stance that manipulation is bad. But you're right. It doesn't really have a a conscious mind to make those decisions with. What if, you know, going back to this whole thing about the monster being the secret of this temple of the Grand Master, you know, we kind of lean into this whole thing. The monsters may be being manipulated. Yes, absolutely. Like they're using it for their own ends. And maybe we can even work in a bit of the snake oil business here. Oh, no. (laughs) Are they milking a monster? (laughs) Well, maybe. Like, I think when we start crafting the story, we can maybe uh, think about how this monster's natural resources or something related to that could be connected to the healing waters which makes a lot of sense as to why they would need to be able to control it yeah because yeah oh there's so many good things here (laughs) if they kill the monster they could potentially hurt the living one like there are so many different things to play with in terms of choices that we can give our players just by doing some of these corners yeah we got a real good thing going here i feel and we'll name it giorgio (laughs) damn it i knew that monkey was coming back again it's a giant monkey it fits king kong underground (laughs) settled sure the natural habitat (laughs) they're harvesting monkey oil all right well i think we've come up with some pretty decent corners we at least have enough that we can start to flesh out the story and man i cannot wait to get into that but i want to make a quick point on modifications Because the real strength of every system that we use, including this four-corner opposition, is that it kind of breaks the ideas down into their core components, which we can then tweak, alter, and flavor however we want, including in order to suit the party perfectly. So, like, these are ideas for this story. Like, if we were actually running this adventure, and we wanted to, you know, do uh, an adventure arc that focused on one of these characters, you could change these corners. like. For Weld, maybe Weld's old cult leader overtakes the temple in an attempt to gain more power instead of that grandmaster. Right. Or, you know, what if like Eden was 
uh, fighting a monster that was a manifestation of their evil god like what if they had to question whether or not their god was actually good because it was you know sealed with the signet of their god or something like that yeah and you could replace that that temple duo that they find with members of squib's family that maybe are here to track down the resources for their family right they're the ones that are moving in to try to take control of this resource and ultimately all we have to do is look at this four corner again with different shared values in mind. If you're trying to make these characters fit your party, all you need to do is figure out what are the common values of your party and then relook at this four corner and say, how does this work with those values? It becomes pretty easy to tweak once you kind of get into the flow of it. And obviously do this as a group. It is, you know, one of the worst things about being a GM, and there aren't many, like I love being a GM, but one of the worst parts is just that you do so much of it alone. And that's not necessarily how things have to be. You can have these conversations openly with your party and have them contribute and plow ideas into your villains. Get their help building the ideal villain for them. You know, it doesn't necessarily always have to be done in the shadows. And just like we did, we worked with two of our patrons, Dangerous Marmalade and Leprechaun, and we actually also got additional help from Lila. And we ended up creating something that I'm pretty freaking stoked for. I can't (laughs) wait to get into this story. Yeah. Fleshing it out is going to be fun. And we really appreciate the help because obviously if we made those characters all on our own, (laughs) We'd just be writing our own stories. So we appreciate the input and the fun ideas. Speaking of kick-ass collaborators, thank you so much to Inigo the Brave, David P, Adam F, Alex R, Steve A, Sigma, Kaleidoscope, Skylar E, Deadman, Ninja Ducky, Sue Art, Blackthorn, First Law, Peacock Dream, DM Thunderbum, Marley R, Time Warp, Dangerous Marmalade, Zach G, No Ma'am, Michelle T, Adlerius, Chris F, The Senate, Lucas D, Lila G, The GM Tim, Nevermore, Thomas W, DM Natsky, Heavy Arms, Leprechaun, and Will HP. Thanks as always to Tabletop Audio for the sound effects you heard in this episode. For any resources that we mention, you can find them on our website at hookandchance.com. If you got any benefit from this episode and you think it could help someone else with their game prep, please share this episode or consider leaving a review. Four Corner Opposition is so valuable and it's such a heady concept, but as soon as you grab onto it and you start to use it, it becomes so effortless and so much fun and so valuable. So we hope that you found a lot of value from this episode. You just start sprinting with your ideas. And share some of those ideas on Discord with us. Uh, You can also become a patron to help guide this show and participate in some of the conversations we're going to be having about each part of this season, which we're calling Corruption in the Temple of Trials. Thanks Thanks for for listening and and play great games. The greatest source of inspiration for a villain is my brother Travis, so keep that in mind. Happily antagonize you. (laughs) 